ignition sequence start. Five. Everything. Three. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake Jr. This is Everything Sounds. Take a minute and think about some iconic examples of phone booths or pay phones and how they're used in popular culture. What? <laughs> Ron, uh, wh- where are you? I'm in a glass case of emotion. Gentlemen, I'm here to help you with your history report. What? How? What? Bill, what? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel, Superman. This might be a stretch, but stay with us. All of those examples seem to have a common thread. Someone goes into a phone booth, and they are personally transformed or transported somewhere else in time or space. Modern-day payphones and phone booths are struggling to compete with cell phones and other mobile devices. But many of them haven't physically disappeared yet. They're just sitting, ignored, on street corners all over the world. A recent project took place in New York City that used payphones in a way that's similar to the media for the purposes of transformation and time travel. Uh, my name is Ray Del Savio. I'm an associate creative director at Droga5, which is an ad agency here in Manhattan. Ray and Droga5 were asked to develop a way to promote an exhibit in New York for a museum. So they came up with a project called Recalling 1993 to promote the exhibit in question at the new museum which featured work created or shown in New York back in 1993. The exhibit that Recalling 1993 was supporting showcased a New York City that was pretty different from the one that exists today. Ray and his team were initially asked just to create a billboard. After seeing some of what the new museum would be displaying, they had a list of some other ideas. So one of those 10 things was um, to really help people um, experience 1993. Um, and in doing so, we, the idea was pick up a payphone, they're everywhere, um, and uh, deliver stories through those payphones to get people to sort of transport them back to what it was like back then. Here's the gist of it. You pick up a New York payphone, dial a number, and you hear a story from 1993 that involves the block or neighborhood that you're standing in at the time. My name is Norma Kamali. I'm a fashion designer, and in 1993, I discovered my chance to bring fitness, health, and how it related to beauty into my collections. Uh, I'm David Barton, and uh, in 1993, I had just opened my first David Barton gym. My name is uh, Sister Miriam Kevin, and I'm a sister of charity who was missioned to St. Vincent's Hospital in 1993. I am Fernando Mateo. I am the founder of Toys for Guns, a gun exchange program that took place in 1993. Hi, it's Betsy Johnson. Boy, in 1993, me and my daughter Lulu, we were just the little fashionistas of downtown. 
You might hear from athletes, entertainers, designers, or any number of other New Yorkers. Sounds simple, but when you consider there are thousands of payphones in New York City, the idea of sharing location-specific stories gets incredibly complicated. On top of that, the phones may not all be in working condition. Payphones nowadays go in and out of service quite frequently, um, but it was, um, it was a toll-free number. So any payphone that was working, I think there's maybe 15,000 on the island of Manhattan, five to 6,000 of which work. So we think we got about 5,000 plus phones. So how do you get each payphone in the city to serve up these unique stories? It involves some technical know-how and, of course, interns. Our, our tech, des- uh, tech developer, is, is, uh, he was the mastermind behind it. But from what I understand in simple terms is um, every single payphone has its own unique phone number. So um, a database can tell where that phone number is coming from. And then we, we sent out interns and they went to almost every single payphone in Manhattan and recorded every single number. Because a lot of databases that they have, the numbers are all wrong. So we find out what phone number, um, what payphone has, what payphone number, um, and then we just create a database. And so when somebody calls in from, say, you know, Lafayette and Fourth, we know that that's Lafayette and Fourth number. And then we serve up, you know, in this database, we serve up a num- uh, a story specific to that uh, corner there. Collecting the stories was a big undertaking. We collected about 150 stories. Not only did they have to find the stories to go with the locations around the city, but they also had to find the people that were involved with these stories that they didn't know at all. And then we would scour the New York Times back in 1993, see what was going on in New York. If we saw an interesting story, we would then sort of follow up on trying to find that person and see if they would tell the story. So I think all told, we had four and a half hours, I guess, worth of content in sort of two minute increments. So it was quite a bit of stuff. If they couldn't get people that were directly involved to read or tell their stories, they enlisted the help of other narrators. And some of those included writers and New York historians. Everyone that shared a story volunteered their time to do it. Even famous New York personalities like the chef and restaurant owner Mario Batali and former New York Yankees pitcher Jim Abbott found the time to record their experiences. Some of the people involved may be recognizable to people outside of New York, but there were some that had more of a local appeal. For an example, there was an ex-porn star who hosted a cable access show in Manhattan named Robin Bird. She gave a glimpse into how Times Square had changed since 1993. And the area wasn't really as dangerous as people thought it was in those days because most of the bums that you thought were bums on the street were really undercover cops. And you knew, and there was always the horses, the mounted uh, police officers that were there. In fact, I introduced some, some, one of the big boobed girls to one of the police officers and they got married and they live down south now. So it was a great time. It's too bad it's changed because now it's very pasteurized, homogenized, and uh, it looks like Vegas. There were also guys like Dave Ortiz, who owns a bike and skate shop, who talked about how places like the Meatpacking District have improved, but at the same time, lost something. In 1993, I used to hang out in the Meatpacking District pretty much every day. In the summertime, the smell down there, because there was so much blood and meat in the, in the streets, 
that it reeked like woo you know you get that like holy moly back then it was such a slum and you know rats the rats were something oh man the rats were huge that's something I don't miss it's, it's amazing what they turned it into it's cool but it's lost it's like authenticity rats turned up a few times in recalling 1993 James St. James, who was a notorious club kid in the 90s, had to share his apartment with one particularly persistent rodent. I remember there was a rat in the apartment. It used to chase me around and it would hiss at me. And it, would, it, would, like, I, it wouldn't die no matter what. I had exterminators come. No, this rat was like invincible. It would, and it would come up in the, on my bed at night and just hiss at me. Oh, it was terrible. Um, now, that wasn't the only strange thing about the apartment. Apparently, he noticed some tourists coming by and taking pictures from the street, and he found out that it was because of who had lived there before he did. It was a man named Daniel Rakowitz. Now, if you're squeamish, I'm going to give you a heads up. Go ahead and turn the volume down for about 30 seconds. Go ahead. And um, Daniel Rakowitz was the cannibal of the East Village, and he had murdered his girlfriend, Monica Birol, I think. Uh, she was a go-go dancer. And he had murdered her, chopped her up, and made stew out of her in my apartment. In he, he like my refrigerator, my 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 oven, my everything was where he made stew out of his girlfriend, and then gave this, gave it away in Tompkins Square Park to the homeless people, and fed all the homeless people with, with Monica. Many people claim New York was a grittier place in 1993, and the stories reflect that. Ray and the team made sure to let people know that recalling 1993 was intended for people that are 18 and older, but they know that a disclaimer like that's likely to draw attention from people of all ages. Yeah, there's that, and I think it also, you tell a 16-year-old they can't do something, they're going to want to do it. So I think there was a little bit of that as well. It's kind of like telling someone not to think of an elephant. Now you're thinking about the elephant. Oh, damn it, I am thinking of an elephant. Absolutely. You see a red button that says don't press it, people are going to press it. Recalling 1993 wasn't all that concerned about presenting a sanitized version of New York history. The point was to give an idea of what the city was really like at that time. You know, nowadays, there are a lot of things you can't do for a lot of different reasons, some good, some bad, but there are a lot of rules. And back then, there were not a lot of rules. So it is sort of reflective of the way that we approach things, that we just put everything out there for people to hear and, and judge accordingly, I guess. Recalling 1993 ended in May of 2013, but they do still have all of the stories archived and waiting to find a new home. They're working with the city to try and deliver other information through payphones, and their database of stories is still set up for whatever they decide to do with it. Regardless of where these stories end up, sound can create a vision of the city that text or images just couldn't. I think hearing those stories and also seeing a city that's completely been transformed in the last 20 years is really important because you have to use your imagination to, I mean, you go through Times Square now and it's more like Candyland than anything. And so it's really hard to imagine salacious sex shops and peep shows and stuff like that. And it's, I think it's nicer to hear that story and sort of look at this sort of very commercialized place and then imagine something completely different. And uh, it forces people to sort of picture things. Recalling 1993 has generated both positive and negative reactions. Some people think the city's better than it's ever been. Others miss the grittiness or supposed authenticity that's been lost. Still, 
It's a city that's always going to change, whether you like it or not. Hearing about the past by picking up a payphone made Ray think about the classic New York expression. It says New York will be a beautiful place once they finish it. And it's, it's never going to be finished, you know, it's just constantly changing. And I think that's what's amazing about New York. You know, 20 years from now, I hope it'll be, you know, a different place as well. At the recalling 1993 site, you can see a map of the entire island of Manhattan and every single phone booth that used to be in the city. It's really fantastic. You can find a link to that site at everythingsounds.org. And while you're there, consider becoming an Everything Sounds audiophile. You can choose what you'd like to contribute and we'll send you exclusive content as it becomes available. Visit everythingsounds.org support to find out more. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate, along with shows like Here Be Monsters, The Broad Experience, and Let's Make Mistakes. You can find the full lineup at muleradio.net. And a special thanks today to Eliza Connedy and Peter Fortas for their help in tracking down what seems to be one of the last remaining payphones on Chicago's North Shore to record for sound effects. I'm George Drake Jr. And I'm Craig Shank. Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds.